Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the connection and change that comes from really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the good stuff happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum, infused with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bone, and it is my greatest honor to be chief story steward around here. I combine my decade of experience working in the mental health field with my five plus years of sobriety to bring you candid conversations with spectacular guests, pulling back the curtain on what it really looks like to ditch the booze. We like to think that we're changing the way the world sees drinking one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? I wish you could see my face right now because I am elated to be back in your ears today. Welcome back to Sober Stories. Better late than ever, right? When we went on hiatus after wrapping season one in October, I really didn't expect that it would be June before we were back in this space together, but I'll be totally honest with you. Burnout got the best of me and it became very apparent that I really needed to slow down. A lot of things have changed since then, many of which have allowed me to rediscover the joy and the hard work that goes into everything we do here in the sober space. I'm so excited to bring you our newest season of the podcast. We've got some fantastic guests lined up, a few new ideas in the works, including more ways for you to plug into Sober Stories. In fact, head over to wearesoberstories.com slash community to make sure you are the first to find out. And, oh, there's my cat. And the moment you have been waiting for, drum roll please, we have merch. It's finally here. I'm sorry it took so long, but it is really good. So there's that. But in all seriousness, I want you to know that the time we spend together here in this space truly feels like one of the most important things I've ever done. This podcast is a labor of love, and I'm so, so happy to bring her back and better than ever. It means the world to me that you are here. And now on to the good stuff. And that is really, really good storytelling. First up on season two of Sober Stories, I've got a conversation with the wonderful Taylor Nolan. Many of you might recognize her from season 21 of The Bachelor, Nick's season, and season four of Bachelor in Paradise. But these days, Taylor is better known for the incredible work she does as a therapist and PhD in clinical sexology. Taylor and I discuss what it was like to film The Bachelor as a non-drinker, how her sobriety helps her prioritize safety, and how the trifuckery, as she calls it, oppresses us and makes us sick. And yes, we do have a few juicy inside scoops from the show. After you give today's episode a listen, tag us and Taylor and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories crew, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Taylor Nolan to Sober Stories. Taylor, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. It's so weird to hear somebody introduce me as doctor. That really that really hit me for a second. I was like, oh, shit. Yep, that's right. That's me. I am a doctor now. I had to. I mean, I had to. It's so amazing that you have completed this PhD. So I got to give credit where credit's due. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, it's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. So some of our folks may know you as I know you as Mm -hmm. Taylor Nolan from season 21 of The Bachelor, which was Nick's season. Is that correct? Regrettably, yes. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I was going to (laughs) ask your thoughts there, but yes. Okay. So Nick's season, season 21, uh, and Mm -hmm. then Bachelor in Paradise season four. But that was a long time ago. So I'm really excited to catch up with you and learn more about what you have been up to in the years since you filmed Mm -hmm. and hear more about your experience in this shared space that we have here. So with that in mind, um, let's dive right in. Does that work for you? Yeah, absolutely. Ready to dive on in. 
Okay. So one of the things that stuck out to me the most when I was watching The Bachelor, and I am um, Mm. regrettably an avid (laughs) watcher of the entire Bachelor franchise. I think that's most Don't ask me. Yeah. Don't ask me how that squares with my feminism. Um, Don't ask me how it squares with my sobriety, with my intellect. I I can't reconcile all Mm -hmm. of the things, but here I am. And I really remember noticing the fact that you didn't drink in Mm -hmm. the recordings of these seasons. And in this very booze-soaked environment that is Mm -hmm. Bachelor Nation and the filming of these shows, I think it really was a standout moment. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I know for me, 2017 was also when I was getting sober. So Mm. I was just like grasping for visuals of women, young women specifically, who lived a life without alcohol. So it really, really stuck out to me. But I don't know that we got the story. So what is the story of you and alcohol? How did you end up filming a season of The Bachelor and being a person who didn't drink? Yeah. Well, it it wasn't anything new for me at that point. Mm -hmm. Going on the show and not drinking wasn't something that was difficult at all. It's It really has been my norm for quite some time. So... I would say uh, when I think about my journey, if you will, uh, with alcohol. (laughs) God, we got to get a better word for that. We have to get a better word for that. Like, especially in the Bachelor franchise or me. So many, so many words now are like off limits for me. I'm just like, I can't, I I can't can't hear these words anymore. But when I think about like where all that started for me, I think back to this photo. I posted it years ago, actually, um, and blurred, blurred their face out. But uh, I'm probably like five years old on the mm-hmm. couch with uh, one of my mom's closest friends and you know she's got like a bud light in her hand and i think i have a um a budweiser or something a can uh in my hands and we're just both holding it up she's got a cigarette in her other hand too um and we're just holding Very it up 1990s. smiling so 90s and jersey yeah jersey yeah. south yeah. jersey 90s you know um yeah they would have been like 24 years old, 24, 25. Um, so, when I think back to that, it's pretty funny that, you know, I grew up in that environment and yet never really drank. So in middle school, I lived in Charleston, South Carolina, and that is where I first started experimenting with alcohol and with drugs. You know, I snorted Adderall and uh, smoked weed and we would take shots of vodka and tequila and then go to, you know, the town center and go to the movie theater and thought we were so cool. Uh, and so every cool. every time that we would take shots, it was just so unenjoyable for me, mm-hmm. frankly. It tasted terrible to me. It smelled terrible. And I really disliked the feeling of being out of control of my body. So mm. I started leaning much towards, much more towards smoking weed. And, you know, I'm sure unconsciously a lot of memories, you know, from being in middle school and in elementary school of being around my family in Jersey and just seeing how intense the alcohol usage was, how normalized it was, but never feeling comfortable in it. Always feeling a little bit on guard and always feeling a little uneasy of like, are these adults going to be able to be the adults that like I need them to be so I can like be a kid? (laughs) And always – 
finding myself in positions even at, at a really young age, you know, even in middle school of kind of feeling like I was taking on more of a parental role. And throughout that time of exploration, I watched a lot of my friends get in really, really bad situations. I was with them as well, but I wasn't wasted. I had like clear, clear understanding of what was happening Hmm. and was able to navigate through it much differently than they were. And I was terrified of being taken advantage of, truly, truly Hmm. terrified of that and watched it happen with a few of my friends. And even when I was tipsy, I could feel, I mean, we were also hanging around kids who were much older much older Mm -hmm. than us at 12, 13 years old and Mm -hmm. of feeling like even just when I was a little tipsy or even when I was a little high, that the room for these older men to start taking advantage of me was right there. And at Mm -hmm. times, you know, it would go there a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, I just was always thinking like, and imagine if I was wasted. Imagine if I was drunk. And yeah, it just terrified the shit out of me. And then, yeah, there was one night like that was just so vividly terrible of my friend basically getting alcohol poisoning and, you know, projectile vomiting and just really, really bad. And I was just so scared for her. It was scary. It made me feel like, yeah, just super scared, honestly, Mm. as, you know, as a little girl and also of knowing that my family members, you know, have had cirrhosis and have passed Mm. away because of that and just seeing how addiction played out. And honestly, yeah, middle middle school was really the only time that Mm. I played with it. I got tipsy and was around it a lot. And uh, yeah, I remember even my family, we had had a pirate party. (laughs) Pirate party. Classic. I don't don't remember why. I think, uh, you know, my stepdad was in the military, was in the Air Force. And uh, I think maybe he had like gotten back from a deployment or something. It was some kind of celebration and we made it pirate themed. Um, But I remember, you know, exactly. There were, you know, jello shots everywhere. And it was like just the things I was exposed to, the things I saw adults doing, I just knew in the moment, like, this isn't what they should be doing. Like Mm. with me, my friends, other younger kids around, like nobody's paying attention. We're able right now to do whatever the fuck we want to do, essentially. Where are the adults in the room? Yeah, exactly. Like they were out of their minds. And as I grew up, I just continued to kind of smoke weed in like the beginning of uh, high school. And I found, you know, weed made me really horny. It didn't make me it didn't make me feel very out of control in my body. And I still felt like I had, you know, control to protect myself. And yeah, I think in high school, I absolutely there's peer pressure. There's, you know, oh, like there's this weirdness that, you know, I don't drink and everybody else is. And I still just like made it a point to like have fun. I think my best friend in high school. She was a year older than me. And for her 18th birthday, she just really, really, really wanted me to have a drink. And mm. I took like three sips of a Mike Har- of a Mike's Hard Lemonade. And Ugh. that was it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> we my stomach <laughs> And I took like a few <laughs> sips and I was just like, this is really Ugh. what you wanted for your birthday? Cringe. I do not like this. That was really it. That was the last time. And I guess that's kind of just a 
a long, brief overview of just what it's looked like, my relationship mm. with alcohol. I haven't drank since then. Yeah. You know, I think that that's such an interesting story because I know there are lots of people out there like you who maybe tried it young and just never bought into it and never gave mm-hmm. it the space in your life to become this big, bad thing that it is for so many mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. And I've historically made a point of not having conversations in this space in in sober stories with folks who are in that space because most of the people who listen to this come from more of an addiction standpoint. And Mm -hmm. I want to be able to speak to that. And that's my background and that's my clinical training and Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But then I realized there's a lot of hypocrisy in that because your sober story or the fact, whatever you want to call it, your Mm -hmm the version of you that lives without alcohol is just as valid. And I think one of the pieces that I want to dig into more and touch on is the fact that you have lived without this substance that is very culturally accepted. Mm -hmm. It is very normative. It is very ingrained into so much of our society and our stories in our family units and our socializing. You still have lived without this substance Mm -hmm. in all of this time. So I'm really excited to hear more about your perspective with this Mm -hmm. in the fact that, you know, you've got several years, decades. I, I don't know how old we are here. Yeah. Uh, but like 29. just a lot. 29. Okay. <laughs> Not trying to, to out anybody's age here. Okay. Um, I'm 33 for anybody who wants to know. But yeah. just all of this time under your belt of making life fun. And that's one of the things mm-hmm. a minute ago you said is that you wanted to make things fun. Yeah. And you didn't want alcohol to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. So you put it away in early adulthood, early child or late childhood, 13. even if you want to. 13. Yeah. How did you make the next years into 29, mm-hmm. who you are today, fun and feel good mm-hmm. without booze? Yeah. So I think it first started off a bit of, I got to prove myself. Yeah. Oh shit. If all the friends I'm hanging out with are wanting to, you know, steal our parents' tequila and, <laughs> you know, like if I'm not about that, am I going to have any friends? Because it seemed like everybody was doing it. So at first it felt like this, I got to prove myself. I got to I gotta let people know that I'm still like down to hang, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm so cool with them getting fucked up. At first it kind of started off with, you know, I would help, you know, where I could. I, yeah. I would help with getting alcohol. I would still kind of, you know, I'm still smoking weed. So I'm still getting high, yeah. you know? I'm still getting fucked up with y'all. Yeah. And... It, it honestly became this like, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for those people at the time, but my understanding and when I reflect back, it feels like over time, they began to feel safe in some ways to be fucked up around me because I became a bit of a caretaker mm. and I could yeah. talk about and, you know, share with them some of the things that happened that they don't maybe remember. Mm. I think I I felt like a grounding place for them at times. And so I think that's kind of a bit how it started. And then, you know, it, it really was only like two, three years, you know, of that middle school experience until then I moved and then was living in Anne Arundel County in between Baltimore and Maryland for my high school experience. And there it felt a lot harder. There, mm. obviously, you know, I'm the new person anyway. And I'm also the new person who like doesn't drink. Mm. Yeah, doesn't party. <laughs> um, yeah, and well, and I would still, I would still party, and and for me, it always became about the music. So mm. you know, I would love to DJ, and if the music was good, I'd be dancing, and I'd put myself in a good place. I still 
obviously, you know, at that age, like there's a lot of exploration happening, you know, so I would have a lot of focus on my crushes and, you know, the people I was interested in and trying to still show and still for myself be like, I don't have to drink to have fun. And it felt like in a way I had to prove this to other people, not only of like, hey, you can still invite me, I'm still fun, but also like, it, yeah, and if you don't want to drink, you also have permission because I'm having a ball and I'm not drunk. And it also felt like an internal thing of I want to be somebody that can be courageous. And if I want to go up and talk to somebody at a party, I don't want to have to only be able to do that because I've now taken a shot. Like hmm. I wanted to feel that sense of empowerment. And looking back, it sounds – it feels so, so weird because I'm like – I, I speak about doing things now in such a more intentional yeah. way and I can like recognize that, you know? And it's like, oh shit, I was doing that then and I like did totally. not have the language for it at totally. all. Totally. <laughs> I'm like already making connections on my notes of like, okay, I was going to already talk to Taylor about like confidence <laughs> and visibility yeah. and all of these things. Yeah. You were doing that at a young age. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's a, it's a tricky balance and, you know, not to kind of jump a little bit, but I'm going to jump a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, the the confidence that I think came with that, that I wasn't always aware of at a young age, was also part of what made people feel uncomfortable around me. And the totally. show is a great example of that. The fact that I wasn't drinking on the show did make other people feel suspicious and feel uncomfortable mm. around me. That's as far as I'll jump for now about okay. the show. We can get into that <laughs> later. But, but I do think at, you know, a young age and in high school and in university. I think I also had, you know, a certain amount of privilege of like being attractive, you know, where people mm. I think still want you to come to the party because you're, you're another hot girl at the party, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that w we'll find a way to get her drunk, you know, totally. no, no way you're not going to drink. Just try this totally. one. This one's really fruity. It doesn't even taste like alcohol. Just, just Ugh. a sip of this one, you know, like, well, we'll get you a ride home. You know, you don't have to worry about driving. Mm. And I, ne I just didn't trust those people. It mm. felt like, it, yeah, it just it felt so uneasy and it just felt like you're not a safe person if this is the way this dynamic's going to go. And, you know, I would smile through it. I'd make jokes through it to get myself through it, to, to protect myself. Part of me, I think, just also got really stubborn in it of like, wow, so many – every place I go, every social setting, this is happening and – People are like so not okay with me just mm -hmm. being like, I just don't want to. I just don't yeah. feel the need to. If I wanted to, I would, but I don't. So like it became so much more about people's reaction and their discomfort with it than it did mine. Like totally. I had to navigate more of other people's shit than my own when it came to it because I was fine with it. I was totally fine hmm. being at a party dancing, listening to music, having fun, you know, looking at the hot guy across the room, you know, being all <laughs> excited about my outfit and whatever. I was totally cool with all of that and knowing I was going to remember my whole night. I wasn't going to potentially be taken advantage of. I was going to be able to remember my whole night. I wasn't going to feel like shit the next day. None of those things sounded good to me. None of those hmm. things were things I wanted for myself and I felt 
just very like stern in that. And Hmm. even people in my family didn't get it. You know, my mom didn't get it. And the people eventually, you know, I think found it to be to their advantage, like I said earlier, of, you know, I'm the DD or yeah, I'm you get like, to drive them. yeah, I'm going to make sure that they get water before they go to bed, you know? So I think some people still enjoyed me being there for that. And then on the other hand, there were definitely people similar to like I jumped to on the show where my presence, my sober presence, my confidently sober presence mm. made them very uncomfortable. And I- Absolutely. I've, I become a target of their discomfort, of their shame that they were holding for their alcohol usage. I was mm-hmm. the place to discharge that too. Mm. Yes. Can we talk about that? Is that on the table? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what was that like filming the show, being in this space without drinking in a space where sometimes I watch and I'm like, that person is not safe. That person yeah. is not well. Mm-hmm. I'm worried for that person. I can see what's happening. Um, Again, this is where I have a hard time squaring a lot Mm -hmm. of my beliefs with watching the show. But it's it's no secret that there's alcohol everywhere on the show and Mm -hmm. that a lot of what happens is the result of alcohol use. So what was that like? I I will speak my truth on this. And I know that people will feel however they feel based on either loving me or hating me because that was most of the reaction after the show. I'm like Team Taylor. I didn't know there were people (laughs) that hated you. The internet's yeah, and a terrible place. <laughs> I will I will be so honest and believe me or not, it was incredibly difficult to watch. And mm. and I don't say this from a place of like, here I am up on my sober high horse. It felt so wrong. You know, producers even told us on our season that we were the heaviest drinking season that they had ever had. My season was a season of partiers. And after my season and then my season of paradise, they changed up the rules Mm. because I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to get into other people's stories or other specifics. But there was a lot of alcohol abuse that I tried very hard, several ITMs, several hour-long conversations, basically like bitching to my producer of like, Mm. this is not okay. This is not okay. Like people are unwell. That's not normal. Like that's not – like what are y'all doing? Like trying to fight for people who not only aren't fighting for themselves but who Mm. don't want you to be fighting for them. And, you know, that's also like, yeah, in the field, you know, I also worked in substance abuse and um, rehabilitation. And it's like, you know, yeah, you can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. And in that environment, living with people, seeing this day in and day out, seeing it just so in your face, seeing it completely transform the opportunities that you could have had in that space Mm. made it so hard to not try to help it. Yeah. Made it so hard to be silent about it. And, you know, I'm really happy to see that the show did change things. They never, never, not once ever pressured me whatsoever to drink. Right. It was always very clear, even in my casting, I don't drink mm-hmm. and I'm not going to drink. Right. Which <laughs> is something. It, yeah. Absolutely. I think a lot of people think that, you know, it's really pushed on people. And maybe other people would say differently. I don't know. I'm not going to speak to other people's experiences again. But again, on my season, a lot of people wanted to drink. 
they wanted mm. to drink in the morning and they wanted to drink throughout the day. And it's a fucking stressful environment. You are hella stressed Seriously. and just like in the real world when people are stressed and they go to alcohol to numb, to cope, to escape. People are using the same things and it's just highly more accessible and in- encouraged in some ways on the show. And mm. I think it's socially- like Absolutely. Socially, it did actually (laughs) – where like in real world, I don't feel like it's really taken me away from being able to be social. But in that environment, it did. I felt the most uncomfortable about not drinking in a social setting on the show than I did – than I have anywhere else. It felt very much like I'm the weird girl because I'm not going to drink. There were other people that didn't drink a lot, but they would still take the shot, take a Mm. shot, you know? And most of the time I can get away with just sitting that out and it not being like a huge disruptor. And it just felt like I wouldn't be invited to certain things because Mm. I wasn't perceived as like party girl or with like my seriousness. (laughs) I was very serious on this season. <laughs> I was so stressed and was so serious. <laughs> like watch and, it back again. It's been a minute. Oh my god, it's so bad. And it, when you rewatch it and you recognize like that this was in 2016, right around the election, my season was just ca- that was chaos. It was so reflective of where our society and our culture was. It, it, it was a lot. I, I retreated so much more. The other thing, we can't listen to music on the show. And what? Crazy. Yeah, no music. And so for me, in those instances where people are typically drinking, there's music. And I'm still like having a ball. I'm dancing. I'm singing. I'm like getting down. I'm jamming out. And none of that was there. Is that because y'all can't have phones? That's such a weird rule. Yeah, well, because it goes with the audio, you know, it'll it'll oh, mess up the audio okay. and got it. Yeah, so like there'd be a rare moment where like in an ITM I could be like, I'll talk about it, but I need you to I need to hear a song. I need to yeah. jam out for a second. Like I need totally. to get all this stuff like out of my body and like just yes. I just need like five minutes to jam out, please. <laughs> um, I will spill all of my deepest secrets for you. I just need you to play some Beyonce for a second. Yes, literally. Like I was just like. I need, you know, other people are allowed to, you know, they're drinking, they're getting, that's their coping. I'm like, I was journaling. I was, you know, talking to a few of the girls that were my friends, you know, but at the same time, it's like, are they my friends? I don't Mm. know. I don't know these people. These are all new. This is a weird experience. Like, what are producers talking? Like, it's just, it's, it's a social experiment. It's fucking weird. (laughs) Totally. Um, And yeah, for me, it was like, typically, yeah, in these situations where there's, alcohol and people are getting fucked up. Like I'm able to dance and sing and jam out and still be a part of it. And with this, it was like, take shots and like do stupid shit. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I could, I can join in in the stupid shit, but also I'm so fucking stressed and nobody cares that like people are just getting wasted again. And then we're going to go on this date and like, what? With (laughs) Nick. I was just so serious. Mm. And I think that that definitely played a role because I wasn't able to get into my playfulness. Like I, one of the traits that I love about my mom that I get from her is, is her playfulness. You know, she's a super goofy, happy, just like, you know, party person. And Mm. 
I do have that in me. And it was really hard for me to have a space or to even feel like I had permission or that it was safe for me mm. to share, share that part of me, to access that part of me in that environment. If you've been hanging out with Zipper Stories for a while, you know all about Quitlet, the genre of literature covering the diverse experience of quitting drinking. In fact, we've had some amazing authors on the podcast, like Ruby Warrington of Sober Curious and Amanda E. White of Not Drinking Tonight. Since I know you already enjoy plugging into your sober space via your headphones, we've got the perfect partner for you. It's time to check out Audible. Audible is the leading creator and provider of premium audio storytelling, enriching the lives of millions of listeners every day. Books on Tape have gotten a serious upgrade. With over 200,000 podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals available, you can tune into your latest Quitlet read on your next hot girl walk or school pickup line. Get a free 30-day trial, including one credit or two for Prime members, good for any premium selection by visiting audibletrial.com slash sober stories. That's audibletrial.com slash sober stories. As a person who spills her guts about her drinking problem on the internet, the number one question I get asked on a daily basis is what my favorite NA rec is. Listen, I've been sober for five years and I've tried them all. I can earnestly tell you that Ritual Zero Proof is my tried and true non-alcoholic spirit brand. One I regularly restock. The one making my recycling bin glike around again, just like the bad old days, except this time I don't have hangovers. The one that even my normie friends tell me is pretty fantastic. You're gonna wanna go ahead and order you some other tequila alternative, mixing it with some lime and tahine, and sip the summer away without the splitting headache and regret. It has a ginger base, which gives it a nice bite that you get from like a spicy margarita. Use the code RZPSTORIES for 20% off your order at RitualZeroProof.com. Cheers, y'all. I'm glad you came back to the word safe because I had that written down. I, I feel like one of the pervasive overriding themes I hear from you is a lack of safety mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the use of alcohol for yourself, yeah. for others. And I think one thing that's really interesting to me is I think a lot of us have that awareness and we can understand, oh, I'm putting myself in bad situations mm-hmm. or, oh, that was really dicey last night what I did. Maybe I should learn yeah. something different, but then we don't do it. We don't mm-hmm. have that conviction piece to say, okay, yeah. I trust myself and I trust that I know that this doesn't feel safe and that this mm-hmm. is putting me in positions that I don't want for myself or yeah. in, you know, in the example of the show of like, maybe I am unsafe by drinking mm-hmm. all day and mm-hmm. then going on national television and falling downstairs. And it's like, every time that happens, I'm like, oh, turn the cameras off. Don't, don't, mm-hmm. don't show that. Like we yeah. all know she's strong. I said that many times. That. I said that many times. Turn the cameras off. She should not be on camera right now. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think, but I think that safety thing is really vital mm-hmm. because, I mean, we know the stats, we know the domestic yeah. violence stats. Yep. We know the stats on college campuses with violence against women yeah. and how, how much of those statistics are rooted mm-hmm. in alcohol use? There's either she's yeah. using, the abuser's using, somebody's using mm-hmm. this substance that is removing this safety. And, you know, I think I love the show. I, I'm That's how I know you. That's how I followed you in the first place. Um, that is what gained me entry into your world. Yeah. But I'm more excited to talk about what you do now and mm-hmm. where you are going in this PhD that you have just finished. And this idea as we we step into like safety for women and mm-hmm. being our own full person and knowing and trusting our guts and understanding that our lived truth is real. So mm-hmm. let's dive yeah. into it. Tell me about 
what you do now, your Mm -hmm. PhD, what it means to be a clinical sexologist, and Mm -hmm. if and how being a person who doesn't drink alcohol has anything to play with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, I do want to touch on that safety piece. And I just want to say that for me, how I make the jump and the connection between I know I'm not safe right now. So let me do something about that. Right. Typically, it's, oh, we recognize something's not really safe, but then we still drink or we still put ourselves in that situation. the, The way I'm able to make the jump to change that is to say, I'm worthy of safety. Mm. I am deserving and I am worthy of being safe. I'm allowed to prioritize my safety. I am allowed to walk away if I don't feel safe. I'm allowed to remove myself and make my safety the most important part of whatever hmm. experience it is I'm in. And if yes. I believe that, if I, if I believe that, I'm able to make that behavior change. If I don't, hmm. and if I say, yeah, I don't really feel safe right now. Yeah, well, that's because like, duh, you're never really safe. Like you're actually not supposed to be protected and you're not supposed to be safe. So fuck it and go balls to the wall. Hmm. That is when I know like I'm not honoring myself. I'm not in my best self. I'm not in my worthiness because I recognize I'm unsafe and I'm still engaging in the thing that isn't safe. Yes. So I'll say that on safety. I want to, I want to stick with this for a minute before we jump into the other stuff, because Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, I made a little clip reminder to myself, like, this is it. This is the piece because so many of the people I work with, so many of the people who listen to this podcast are outside of that worthiness. They don't Mm -hmm. see the worthiness for self. They don't understand their inherent goodness. Maybe they have been using the substance in a way for so long that they have this deep shame. Mm -hmm. And I I also see a lot of substance use as a form of Mm self-harm. And I think the self-harm spectrum can be wide and varied and it can look a lot of different ways. But I know for myself, when I was drinking so heavily, in many ways, it was to punish myself and Mm -hmm. to harm myself. And I think that... Even just this idea of worthiness and yeah. what I what I, what I what I will extend to everybody listening to this is like every single person is worthy of every yep. single person has that goodness and has that worthiness. Mm-hmm. But to say, okay, I know this thing. I can see this thing. This doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't totally buy into the idea that I deserve or yeah. I am deserving or I am worthy or I am in this space. But I'm gonna I'm gonna choose to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a really beautiful access point. I'm really glad you shared that. Thank you for bringing that into this because I think that's the other piece. It's like, what's the action point? How do I make the jump from Mm -hmm. knowing and doing? Yeah. What I hear you saying is that it is choosing and claiming that worthiness and the Mm -hmm. rest follows from there. Yeah. And, and it's not an easy jump to make Mm -hmm. by any means. So I don't want anybody listening to this, you know, to think like, yeah, that that happens overnight. Like depending on where you're at in your relationship with alcohol specifically, you know, it's, it's going to look a little bit different, but I think, you know, when you just think about it in terms of self-harm, like you were mentioning, if you are consciously in your awareness, engaging in something that is harmful to you and by you, you're doing so because you believe that you deserve to be harmed. You believe it's okay for you to be harmed by other people and by yourself. What I love to work with people on is, you know, typically this harm, this belief that you are deserving of um, not being safe, that you are deserving of harm happens young 
or it mm. happens during a traumatic experience. And going back to that version of yourself and being able to protect her, being able to mm. protect that version of that person that you were in that moment. And perhaps nobody else made made you feel safe, worthy of safety, worthy of kindness, but you are. And mm. those are lies. <laughs> mm. It is a lie that you are not worthy of safety. It is a lie that you are deserving of being harmed and therefore should harm yourself. To me, it's just doing some of that, you know, I say inner child work, but it's also just like some shadow work of like the past versions of yourself that are, you know, combined and showing up and and allowing this to happen, having absorbed Mm. those messages. And it's it's a lot of really hard work that I definitely encourage folks to do with a therapist if you have access. We always have a disclaimer in here. Don't worry. Yes. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. (laughs) No, but I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the things that's so powerful about quote unquote inner child work or shadow work is the externalization from our current self. Because Mm -hmm. when we feel like we can't extend that kindness, that graciousness, that that safety to the current iteration of ourselves because of all the stories we have, because of all the shame that we have, because of what our present current environment looks like, it is easier to step Mm -hmm. into providing that care and providing that graciousness to something external from our present version. So that can be inner child. Sometimes when I'm working with clients too, I'll say, put that shit on me. What you are saying to yourself, put it on me, say it to me and see if it still rings true because Mm. I've done all the bad things you've done. I have been in all the bad situations you've been in. I've said all the bad stuff to you. And here I am. I'm external from you. I am five years down the road from where you are or like whatever you want to box check that I I check, Mm -hmm. put it on me because you're externalizing this. You're taking out of your present iteration, whether Mm -hmm. it's a role model, whether it's early childhood, like whoever it is, because sometimes we just can't get that separation in our present self. Mm -hmm. With this in mind, I think there's so many tie-ins with the way you were when you were younger and the conviction you felt around alcohol and the confidence to step into these spaces. And you lead a very public life now and you talk about, (laughs) she's cringing for anybody who can't see. (laughs) You talk about a lot of really taboo things on your platform, like sex and like body hair and Mm -hmm. about race and privilege Mm -hmm. and the therapy work that you do as a sexologist. Why do you feel like it's important to pull back the curtain and talk about these things on the platform that you do have now? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll say that once my relationship on the show ended, I felt a very strong desire and movement to shed so Mm. much of the shoulds, to shed this like double false life that I felt I was living. I truly felt like, fuck all of that. I want to just get back to me. I want to just be me. I don't want to be Taylor from The Bachelor. Mm. Like I have had much of a life and myself pre-show and I will have much more of a life after this. And leaving that relationship just felt like I was like free. And I was just like cutting ties with all of the trauma all of the things from the experience. And when that happened, 
I just started to show up on social media differently. I started to show up on my podcast differently. I think in part, it was like, I don't have the energy. I actually don't care anymore to try Mm. to please people and like try to get them to like me. I just felt like all of the things that you mentioned were like just me. (laughs) Sex, something I love talking about. If you know me in real Mm. life, that's something that's going to come up. Race, I am a black biracial woman. I can't escape that. That is part of me that has so significantly shaped my life experiences. I'm going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And it felt like so much of me, quote unquote, was what people knew publicly. And it felt Mm -hmm. like that's not fucking me. That's literally not fucking me. So if all of this shit is going to be out there of like, this is who Taylor is, (laughs) then let me just show up. Rewrite the narrative. Let me just... Yeah, let me just actually be me. And I had a space to do it. Because Instagram became a a thing. Um, (laughs) And, you know, navigating like boundaries there has been super difficult because I think, you know, looking back, there were a lot of times that I didn't honor my boundaries. There were a lot of times that I didn't even have boundaries. And Mm. now I approach it so differently so differently. I am so much more protected and so much more guarded and honor my boundaries so much more on social media. You know, it's been a really intense, chaotic, empowering, while also very shameful Mm -hmm. uh, and humiliating and educational experience since I left the show in terms of my relationship with the public or, you know, Mm -hmm. The the fans of the show. I don't know. Right. The public, yes, but mostly the the fans of of the franchise. So it's felt like I've I've been on a very nauseating roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. And it broke. I was thrown the fuck off the roller coaster. And mm. now I feel like I'm getting to walk away and like rediscover and reestablish who I am and what I actually want my relationship with the public to look like. And I don't think I ever really felt like I had any control in that ever. Mm. I know there's so much I'm not saying that maybe doesn't make sense to people that like I'm saying, but I'm not saying. But to just where I was at then to where I'm at now is so drastically different. And that's so interesting as somebody who observes you from the outside because mm-hmm. I still see you on the roller coaster, but not mm-hmm. necessarily like in a bad way, but in the way that you will show up and mm-hmm. educate women about self-pleasure mm-hmm. or you will call people out for shaming body hair on women. And it's like, mm-hmm. I still see you in this space of the yeah. roller coaster. Would you, is that... Are you still on the roller coaster? Am I saying that wrong? I so I feel like for me being on the roller coaster would have been like, you know, 2021 when somebody makes a comment about like armpit hair, like I go on a whole thing. It's a whole <laughs> okay. thing. Gotcha. Yeah. It is I I use it as content. I share my reflections on it, you know, I I really hold so much space for all of the shit that comes mm. my way because of that. That to me is like I'm on the roller coaster. I'm engaging. Mm. I'm on it. And I don't feel I'm on it anymore because I'll still get those comments. And my response these days is like, boo, you in the wrong place. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't the place for you. Not for I don't. You. I, I don't desire – you know, it's hard. I, I definitely realize, again – 
there's been a lot of reflections as to like how I show up on social and what my relationship is there. But I used to feel so much desire and pressure to educate, to use Mm. the platform responsibly, to... Mm. In order to be worthy of being able to monetize it or being worthy of having the platform that like I needed to use it, not just responsibly, but like in service. Mm. I truly felt like this platform needed to be used in service to people. And it was unfortunately and fucked up diddly, I'm going to make that a word. Yeah, um, I got it. At, at the expense of my like own exploitation. Um, Mm. And I think a lot of creators, you know, have wrestled with that dynamic, but so much of that education came at such an emotional, mental, physical cost and toll Mm. to myself, you know, whether it was talking about racism or talking about sexuality or talking about our bodies or just anything, it felt like just such an exploitation of Mm. my vulnerability and a weaponizing, a complete weaponizing of my vulnerability. So yeah, I I feel like today I don't engage as heavily. Mm. And if somebody, you know, comes to my page and is talking about, you know, black people being racist, I'm like, (laughs) who are you in the wrong place? Yeah. We've been there. and Frankly, it, it's it's a block like mm-hmm. almost immediately. Mm-hmm. There used to be such this pressure of like engaging. Well, no, like I should try to have a conversation and be open minded and blah blah blah. And it's like, oh man, how that like optimism, mm. that pressure of responsibility did not serve me and mm. put me in such poor positions where I was entertaining things that had no substance to them, that Mm. had no actual desire to challenge or to grow or to learn at all. And that's not to say that there weren't people, obviously, who did engage in that way, but so much more of where my energy went was to where that wasn't. Mm. So I feel like I don't engage much at all anymore on any of those topics because honestly, it's it's been traumatizing to be on there. and. I just don't have the capacity and I don't I, – I am now prioritizing my own safety, right? Where like right. social media doesn't feel safe. Being a black woman who is a public figure from the Bachelor franchise, I don't feel safe to talk about race. I don't feel mm. safe to talk about my own vulnerabilities that I know may be helpful to other people that in the past I would have really – felt empowered and excited to share, knowing that it could help people. And now it's a hard no boundary for me. Hmm. I, you took that a totally different direction than I thought you were going to. So I assumed, no, and, and I like, I'm geeking out over here because I think that this is incredible. And especially yeah. hearing, as you said, a black woman protecting her peace, like choosing peace yeah. and choosing safety over expectations yeah. from others, a mm-hmm. burden to perform, to educate, to give knowledge, to be of service. And I'm, I'm sitting mm-hmm. over here feeling a little personally called out for this idea of being in service <laughs> because 
I think it's a really easy thing to slip into if you have a certain lived experience, if you have a Mm -hmm. certain expertise, if you have a certain Mm -hmm. platform. And mine is, is, is very small in comparison, but I do find myself pushing the edges sometimes mm-hmm. of my own comfort yeah. in service of others, in service of, and a lot of my work is rooted in Dr. Brene Brown's mm-hmm. shame resilience yep. theory specifically and the demystification part of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, let me pull back the curtain. Let yep. me tell you my story. Let me show you how yeah. it went so that mm-hmm. it's not so hard for you. But you know what else she says that's really important is <laughs> not everybody has earned the right to hear your story. Yes. Yeah. And that part is yeah. so, so crucial of having yes. discernment with mm. your vulnerability because people mm. think they're being vulnerable because they're being open, but vulnerability includes having boundaries. Vulnerability includes having discernment with Mm. who you're sharing that space with. And I think people get themselves, they play themselves and they wreck Mm. themselves because they, they mistake being open for being vulnerable. And they think I'm being open, so that means I'm being vulnerable. And it's like, no, when you're giving people a total buffet of who you are, Mm -hmm. that's not inherently being vulnerable. Honestly, right. because it lacks that discernment piece. Yeah, and it, and it there's only a certain it it sometimes is us being open to disclose, right? To mm-hmm. say, oh, well, these are all the things about me. You know, I'm in recovery. Just so you know, like, yes, I'm yeah. in recovery, and you know, like, you know, I'm I had a really really bad trauma, and mm-hmm. you know, all these things that people feel that they need to, in some ways, you know, beat vulnerability to the punch, as Brene mm-hmm. says. We try mm-hmm. to get ahead of it and we think we're being open by like, let's just disclose it and put it out there. And now this person can make a decision about my worthiness and about their desire mm. for me and about our connection. And if I mm. put all of this ahead of actually us getting to know each other or having really discernment and understanding if you're a safe person or not for me to really mm. share my vulnerability with, <laughs> we have just skipped over that whole process to just be like, mm. well, here are actually the deepest, darkest things about myself. Here they are. See how open <laughs> totally. I am? See how vulnerable I am? I am. This is so vulnerable. We're going to feel so connected. Where's then, my gold star for vulnerability? Yes. I would like my A+. Plus. Yes. And then people respond to vulnerability so much more. There's so – like you have such a greater opportunity – of your vulnerability being received when it has discernment. When you're just being open and you're just like, here's all my trauma, here you go. What do you think, Tisa? Let me. Like, <laughs> oftentimes you're not going to get the response that you want back. And then you feel like you can't be open. And then you feel like you're rejected. And then you feel like it isn't safe for you. And then you are deserving of harm. And you should actually just go shit faced at the bar down the street because it's five <laughs> o'clock somewhere, girl. Right. Man, I, between this uh, of being in service and what you said earlier about still wanting to prove, like, your cool factor yeah. with people who do drink. I'm like, okay, I got, I got some, I got some journaling to do. Maybe yeah. I'll talk about this with my therapist on Friday. They're all great therapy topics. Yeah. For sure. Oh yeah. I know. My husband the other day was like, do you think I need therapy? And I'm like, mm, uh, do you want me to answer that? I was like, yeah, I do. I was like, yeah, I think everybody should go to therapy. And he's like, what yeah. would I talk about in therapy? I was like, mm. Again, do you want me to answer that? Yeah. See, I don't know. I have a whole – I have very strong feelings about the everybody should go to therapy. I got to – tell me now. (laughs) The everybody should get therapy thing. Mm -hmm. It's something I used to say a lot Mm -hmm. and be totally on board with. And now that gives me such an an icky feeling because Mm -hmm. what it says is that we all are like, let me be so careful with 
how I no, phrase I'm, this. I'm excited about this. You can, you can we, <laughs> dispel anything I've said today, please. So we are absolutely all helpers who are deserving and needing of help. Just because we're a helper does not mean that we don't need help. Everybody is worthy of and needs help at some point, and that's okay. But the everybody needs therapy piece uh, says to me that like collectively, we're not okay. Collectively, uh-huh. something is not going well, especially totally. because of the intense pathologizing and the heavy clinical nature of therapy, right? Mm. That's certainly having a practice that is caring for yourself, that is therapeutic, doesn't necessarily signal that to me. But this Mm. notion that everybody in our society needs therapy is like, oh, well, what's Mm. going on? Does that solve the problem mm. of why everybody needs therapy in the first place? Yeah, right. And totally. to me, to me, it goes a lot of how I approach my work is systemic and zooming out mm-hmm. and looking at, you know, I call them the trifuckery of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. Oh and so how good. <laughs> those three systems, they all work together, they all, you know, uh, influence one another. And those I feel in my opinion and in my work are where so many of our problems are rooted. Mm. So many of, you know, like, oh, if you're like really struggling because you feel like you just need to constantly be produced. Oh, bless you, Lily. Um, my cat just had a big sneeze. Uh, but if you, if you are, you know, in therapy because you feel that you are like just constantly grinding, you just can't keep up. You need to keep proving yourself. You need to get that promotion and then you need to switch to another job and you need to go up and you need to do up and it's just never enough. It's like, well, yeah, that's also the exploitation of your labor. And that is a mm. product of capitalism. That is where that stems from. And productivity culture. There isn't, yeah. And it's like, there's not so much that we can really do individually about those systems, but it's like, yeah, because we all live in them and we receive messages, you know, like pleasure is earned, you know, mm. uh, or like the commodification of our pleasure, like that is where yeah, then does become that we all need therapy. And again, I question mm. it too, because even what you just said of, you know, like, yeah, self-care is so, has been so commodified yep. and therapy is a part right, of that. Mask. And so when people say yep. everybody needs therapy, it's also like, well, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so interesting. I, I used to partner with a um, fairly well-known therapy platform um, in this I. space. Uh-huh. And um, speaking about the commodification of therapy. Uh, but I think I think this also ties back directly to what you said about uh, it's not your job to educate people and that that in itself is a rejection. When we think about what we can do on an individual level, that is a rejection of the Mm -hmm. capitalism, like all Mm -hmm. of these systems that say, you have this entity, it is your responsibility to produce, it is your Mm -hmm. responsibility to educate and to give this part of yourself. And by saying, no, I'm good. Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to do what yeah. I need to do for myself. Like mm-hmm. I feel like that in at least a small way is a rejection of that and mm-hmm. moves us in the right direction. Yeah. And it's one thing, you know, it's like, yeah, my actual literal career is to help people. Yes. Mm. I enjoy doing that. And I'm very grateful and it is a privilege for me. It is an honor for me to be able to do the work that I do and to be able to get paid from it. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But there are boundaries there. Mm-hmm. It's a very right? specific where, container. Where that is not, that does not mean that because you didn't like something I said on a reality TV show that you get to come <laughs> and tell me who I am and yep. expect me to then educate you on some shit that, you know, I'm educated in. Out of nowhere. Or get free labor. Yeah, free labor from you in the form of advice or education or an, yeah. a TikTok reel. TikTok yeah. reel. That's contradiction. You know I, what I, mean? I got you. I got you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think for me, like a lot of my therapy work is like helping folks unpack those systems and the ways that they, you know, carry into our sex lives and carry into our relational lives. It's really hard. It takes a lot of time. It does take education for sure. It takes a lot of practice, you know. I think saying everybody needs help is different than everybody needs therapy. Mm. I'm definitely very pro everybody needs help, but Mm. everybody needs therapy is now something that gives me major pause. And I... Red flag. I, uh, I'm call it. A, I'm gonna call it an orange flag. I'm gonna call it a yellow orange flag. flag. I like it though. I, I feel like I feel like you're right, and I think that that's a really we gotta look at it from that systemic viewpoint. And it makes me wonder: mm-hmm. Have you read the book The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate? I have not. Ooh, okay. I love Gabor Mate's work. He writes a lot in the recovery addiction spaces, mm-hmm. but The Myth mm-hmm. of Normal is it's it's not recovery addiction specific. But the the theory basically is like normal's a myth the normal that we're all striving for doesn't exist because we live in a world that is not yeah. built for us to be normal. And it's 100%. all systemic. And, and what has even been like defined as normal mm-hmm. is actually so not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is mm-hmm. like literally only to benefit a certain mm-hmm. population of people mm-hmm. and you, you bust <laughs> your ass. White yeah. men. Yes. <laughs> it is. And, and that's where even – I was actually literally talking about this last night – thinking that, because I think this is part of how it came up, I really don't take a very clinical approach to my work. Hmm. And my master's is in clinical mental health counseling. And my PhD is in clinical sexology. But I really don't take a very clinical approach to it. And even when it comes to diagnosing folks, I don't enjoy doing that. I don't prioritize doing that in my work. Hmm. And it feels like the whole field of psychology in general and the ways in which we began to categorize and diagnose and consider things disordered was all Mm -hmm. through the lens of white, cis, older, heterosexual men. And when you consider that and you look at like how their lens has been influenced by their life experiences to examine and study these other people and consider like Mm. what is normal and what is disordered and what is disordered is just like I I am actually quite anti-pathologizing people. Mm. And I feel like when we say things like everybody needs therapy, it is also pathologizing all these people that are actually – it's actually just that we're pretty oppressed. It's actually just that we're pretty traumatized and oppressed. And like (laughs) shit has been made intentionally to be really fucking hard for some people. And we're put in boxes that aren't made for us. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, oh, I have imposter syndrome. It's like, no, bitch, you wasn't allowed to be that person. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you don't feel like you can be that person. (laughs) Right, right, right. Because that person was made for like a cis hetero white man. Yeah, it's like, no, you you were quite explicitly told that you are an imposter, yeah. that you yeah. you do not belong here, that this is not for you. So of course mm. you feel like you don't belong there and this isn't for you. Mm. It's not some syndrome you have. It was supposed to be like that. <laughs> this, it, is, yeah. it is working the way it was meant to and it's making you feel 
like shit. It's the trifuckery. It is the trifuckery. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I could dig into this all day. I love this shit. I think it's incredibly yeah. <laughs> uh, important to say it and to be in spaces that are, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar, but the recovery space is very white. Mm-hmm. It is very oh, yes. male. Oh, yes. Worked in it. It's my life's mission is to change that space <laughs> into a safer space for mm-hmm. women, queer people, people of color yeah. to be different than it is now. Coming from the mental health field, I think we're all at least a decade, yeah. if not two decades behind on that. One of the things that I I made a note of before this is your reclamation of the words like slut and whore and how our like feelings about that are really based in white civility. And it's like all Mm -hmm. of these rules that we have, all of these expectations of how we're supposed to show up. Mm -hmm. We didn't decide that. We didn't decide what the rules were supposed to be. And Mm -hmm. now we're all just trying to exist in it. Yeah. And one of the things that I love to uh, kind of affirm and validate my clients with is like, you didn't consent to being in a world with these rules. You didn't Mm. have any say or any control of like, this is what the kind of society that I want to live in is going to look like. You know, Mm. you were born in whatever society you were born in. And it came with, you know, a predetermined set of norms and roles that you are supposed to, Mm -hmm. you know, fall in line with. There's so much conditioning that goes into that as well. It's so wild to me because like the people that are the loudest about like brainwashing and, you know, grooming people in certain ways is like it's actually just folks trying to unpack a lot of what's already been predetermined Hmm. of what already is literally being conditioned. And it's like then there's a complete neglect to acknowledge that things are already being conditioned. Just because people are looking and examining those and trying to unpack those doesn't mean that they are now trying to like brainwash with something else. It is is really hard work to look at every part of how you've been raised. I know I've done it. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. very hard to come to terms with who you were being so out of alignment with who you actually want to choose to be Mm. with the person that you want to be, the person that you truly are being so hard to get to because to get to that person, you have to first look at all of the kinds of things and the kind of person that you've been told you Hmm. need to be and you should be and you need to do and what that should look like and how you'll be accepted and how you'll be loved. And sometimes to get to who you are, you got to go against those things that you've been told are going to get you love. And that feels unsafe. And so there's a Mm -hmm. real discernment and understanding and analysis that has to happen to be able to move through that space of I'm not actually going to be totally safe right now, right? We've talked a lot about safety, but Mm -hmm. this feeling of unsafety is going against what I've known to get to where I know I want to be for myself. Mm. And that's a totally other hard mm. processing of safety. Well, and my my whole theory to bring this all home is that's why half of us have drinking problems. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Is because exactly. we are pushing this all down. <laughs> exactly. Exhaping back to like all of us trying to cope in uh, as quote unquote normal yeah. in a world that we are not built for. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. much of my own, I my, my husband jokes that uh, we got married in the Stone Age. We were we're coming up on our 10th anniversary mm-hmm. and I am not the person he married yeah. in a thousand different ways. Most recently, yeah. I 
stopped eating meat. And that was probably the biggest betrayal of of all for him. (laughs) But like there were so many of these self-discoveries that I was just using a substance to push down and to ignore and to say that feels uncomfortable. That doesn't feel safe to explore. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to drink about it. I'm just going to deal with it in the only way I know how to. And lo and behold, you know, addiction happens and, and here we are. Yeah. And the, and the, the thought of like, yeah, let me just go to drinking. That is what actually is the norm. That is what actually, like we get so hard on ourselves and beat ourselves up of like, this isn't a normal way of coping when in reality, the reason that you're going through it is because it has been so normalized and so accessible and so encouraged quite Mm -hmm. literally as a coping skill that will be good and helpful to you. That is literally what has been marketed to us. Marketing. Oof. Absolutely. That is a hundred percent what has been marketed. Yeah. And obviously, you know, yeah, going back to the show, that was another thing of like, yeah, okay. So much of this even just watching of the show revolves around wine. Everybody's got to get their glass of wine, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember for a while I had this, I was like, oh, I'm going to do like mocktail Mondays and like share, you know, <laughs> all the mocktails that I make. Yeah. But honestly, my basic mocktail is just like, give me some sparkling water with some li- like water. lime and ginger. Yeah. With some lime and ginger and mint. And like, I'm good to go. I'm totally good to go. Yeah. I'm really not trying to get that fancy with it. And the pressure to like have recipes mm. and all this stuff. I was just like, I can't. <laughs> There's other things happening in my life right now. I just can't. Yeah. So many of the things that we go to cope with are actually the norm. They just aren't the healthy ones for us. Mm. And it's really easy to get super hard on yourself and shame spiral about it. And I think if you can, you know, work to really normalize that and affirm your worthiness that like you're worthy of caring for yourself, like Mm. of actually nourishing yourself. Because I think we, again, we like, we mistake soothing for like Mm. care. And sometimes soothing, the ways that we soothe end up hurting us even more, you know, like Mm -hmm. stuffing your face with, you know, a whole bunch of cake and ice cream and whatever, like maybe very soothing for for you in that moment. But was that truly properly caring for yourself Mm. and what you really need? You know, it's not to like shame yourself in that, but it's also to recognize that was to soothe. That wasn't necessarily to care. And after I've soothed, I need to make an intentional moment to actually address what I was trying to soothe because sometimes Mm. it's totally okay and we need to soothe to get through to get through. We need to soothe Mm. sometimes. It's like a a coping, soothing, Mm -hmm. caring dichotomy of of what is actually all those things, which by the way, I have been waiting for somebody to try to think peace on the I'm falling in love. I'm in love. I love yeah. you. Dichotomy of The Bachelor. I need somebody to write that think piece. It can't be me. I, um, I can't even tell you. Literally, when I was on, my producer hated me at the time because I was like, you know, I'm really not a fan. Even in my when they like did my at-home interview uh, before we went to film, like my intro package thing, the way I was – 
very heavily phrasing it at the time was like, I don't, I'm not looking to fall in love, but I do want to consciously step into love with somebody. <laughs> and he'd be like, Taylor, like, come on. Like, yeah, are you going to step into love, Taylor? And I'd be uh-huh, like, uh-huh. I'm like, no, I'm like really serious. Like, I don't want to like, you know, be like, I'm just Fall. falling into love. Like, yeah. I'm just so out of control and like, don't like, no, I want to like actually take a consciously like loving step into being in love with someone. And I, he made fun of me so hard for that. But <laughs> with Nick Vial, nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I literally <laughs> don't fucking know this dude. And he seems yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. wonderful. <laughs> yep. Great times. Taylor, <laughs> this has been incredible. I think you are brilliant and I love so much of what you've shared with us today. I have underlined worthiness at least six times yeah. on my notepad. I want to end with one final question for you today, mm-hmm. especially as we think about you not being Taylor from The Bachelor and you being yeah. Dr. Taylor fucking Nolan. That's right. If your story were to be written into a book, what would it be titled and why? The first thing that comes to my mind is so fucking cheesy. Oh, I love it. Just give it to us. It can be a working title. Blech. Oh my God. <laughs> The first thing that comes into mind, and I understand how cringy this is, is like life in black and white because- Oh, I like it. Or like uh, living in like duality. Duality would uh-huh. be the word maybe because yeah, so much of my life has been navigating duality, you know, being mm. black and white. I feel like yeah. I quite literally in my blood and hmm. well, not my blood, but you know what I mean. I feel like at my core- I am navigating contrast and duality. Mm. And I think at times that makes me a very controversial person. I think at times it makes me a person, you know, who is involved in conflict and in pursuit of resolution. And I think we're all as humans very hypocritical. And I think that's okay. Mm. At times it's not okay. Mm-hmm. But I think so much of my being and in my life has been about existing in spaces of contrast. You know, I was getting my master's degree at Johns Hopkins, a very prestigious university. And at the same time, I was working as a promo girl at the Hustler Strip Club in Baltimore, mm. that I was graduating with my master's degree from Hopkins at 22 years old and going on the reality TV dating show, The Bachelor. <laughs> Both and. It's like these things that that are not, that you would think are not supposed to go together, I'm always like, mm, but can I do that? You know? Mm. Like, I'm a single like? woman at 27 and used all my life savings, worked my ass off to buy a house. And it's like, yeah, you wouldn't think that like, I'm in this house. Mm. <laughs> every contractor, every like labor industry person, you know, so is, you know, Where's your you husband? Know, I'll, I'll give you guys some space to make your decision, you know, to let you guys decide, you know, uh-huh. oh, like, is anybody else, you know, who else is involved in the decision making? Me, myself, mm-hmm. and I, sir. Mm-hmm. That's who. <laughs> Where it's like, I find myself always in these positions of just like, duality and places where maybe people think I shouldn't be, being misunderstood a lot because people Mm. try to think I'm one thing when really I'm also another thing and they can't comprehend or make sense of the duality of the and. Mm. So maybe it would just be called and. And. I like that. 
Yeah. Taylor, this has been incredible. I know our people are going to want to connect with you. So if you would like them to connect with you, how can they find you in your work? Yeah. So taylornolan.com has links to everything, to my Instagram, to affiliates for things like sex toys. If you want to like support me in that way, I get commissioned on some of those links. I have a fan page on OnlyFans that may soon be transferred all over to Sunroom. So I will also be on Sunroom. Everything on social is Taymoka. My Instagram's Taymoka. My OnlyFans Taymoka. My Patreon is Taymoka. And I just joined your Patreon this morning. Yeah, thank you. I saw that. And um, I think you'll enjoy like because of what you said about following me from the show and like seeing all the stuff that I shared how I used to be on social media is very much how I am Mm. on my private page. That has been such a like relieving and comforting space to have because it's folks who are open to having these kinds of conversations and like Mm. seeing the mess in life where it's mainly all stories that I post by, you know, it's like very vulnerable, authentic life updates, whether it's like stuff with, you know, renovating my house or dating or, you know, my family dog just recently passed away and, you know, I was thinking about it. Like I in the past would have put this all over my public page and Mm. wanted to help other people in their processing and, you know, talking about it. And I just felt like, no, they don't, they don't know, but I don't need to, but yeah, just having that, yeah, just having that support of like people subscribing to my Patreon to get access to the private page where we can share that space together is like, has been really, really special. I've done been doing this page for a little over a year now, and it's really nice on everything. I'm Taymoka, and um, if you do if you do live in Washington State, only in Washington State, and are looking for therapy services, my practice is counselingordinarycourage.com, and that is also linked on my taylornolan.com website. That's me. Amazing. I am excited to follow on that more. Um, closed space and on your Patreon and and see some of the behind the scenes stuff. But thank you so much for your time today, Taylor, and your story and for everything you've shared with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Dr. Taylor Nolan. I don't think I will ever forget the way Taylor frames the Troy fuckery and the way it impacts us day to day. Y'all know I could have talked about that forever. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives one killer review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you share with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories, Callie Williams and Zach Kiniston on editing. They also have their very own podcast, Switchcraft, Battling a Bulky Backlog, where they play over 180 Nintendo Switch titles. Check them out. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we're building. Until next week, my friends.